Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. We're so glad to have you with us today. Todd Benton is our host today, and I'm Chris Reese, your co-host. We're joined today by Cassandra Beaton. She's the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And most of the work being done today towards changing how people relate to the environment and social justice is well-intentioned, but often it ends up being ineffective, or even worse, it can be counterproductive. We've found that achieving true and lasting changes in behavior, as it turns out, requires changing our worldview so that new action becomes part of who we are. But if you're like me and you've ever tried to change a worldview or a pattern of behavior in yourself or another person, you know it's quite hard. Cassandra and the Institute of Noetic Sciences have done some amazing research. They've been studying the science of behavior change for years. She's going to discuss with us the research and also how it's been applied in working with people all around the world. So we're really happy to have you here today with us, Cassandra. Welcome. Thank you. And now I'm going to turn it over to your host, Todd Benton. He's going to share with us the news of the inner revolution. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. I'm glad you're with us today. A um, couple of really exciting news items. Uh, well, the first one for me is especially exciting. But um, So yesterday, or actually the day before yesterday, um, the court found, uh, a court found that the approval of the Dakota Access Pipeline violated the law. Uh, so this is from... June 14th, and this is from Earth Justice's news release, but it's also featured on Reuters and many other news outlets. So, in victory for Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, court finds that approval of Dakota Access Pipeline violated the law. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe won a significant victory in its fight to protect the tribe's drinking water and ancestral lands from the Dakota Access Pipeline. A federal judge ruled that the federal permits authorizing the pipeline to cross the Missouri River just upstream of the Standing Rock Reservation, were hastily issued by the Trump administration just days after the inauguration, they violated the the law in certain respects. So in a 91-page decision, Judge James Bosberg wrote that the court agrees that that the Army Corps of Engineers did not adequately consider the impacts of an oil spill on fishing rights, hunting rights, or environmental justice or the degree to which the pipeline's efforts and effects are highly controversial. So the court did not determine whether the pipeline operation should be shut off and has requested an additional briefing on the subject at a status conference next week. So they're going to get further briefings. And, you know, we don't know what's going to end up happening. Maybe the pipeline will continue. Maybe it will get shut down altogether. We really don't know. But this is, a, for me, for us, a really exciting development. Our second news item is uh, from Fast Company from June 9th, and it's entitled Meet the New Breed of Activist Investors Who Are Trying to Give Silicon Valley a Conscience. Arjuna Capital, which went to Facebook and Google's recent shareholder meetings with proposals for gender equity disclosure, is the most visible of these firms. So last Thursday, hundreds of Facebook shareholders at the company's annual meeting in Menlo Park, listened politely as top executives discussed the social media giant's performance metrics and goals until Natasha Lamb got up out of her chair and stood to face the board. She demanded that the company face or address its fake news problem by publishing a formal report about its prevalence on the site and its impact. 
and this is a quoting her, we are talking about content that is posted and disseminated with the intent to mislead, not the mainstream media, which the president refers to as fake news, Lamb explained. While she spoke, CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg, COO Sheryl, Shan- Sheryl Sandberg, and the rest of the board sat with their backs to her. Just once during her speech did Zuckerberg turn around slightly and make eye contact with her. He then turned back around. Lamb's proposal was denied. Facebook also denied another of her proposals for Facebook to disclose its gender pay data. For our journalist clients, Lamb and her colleagues provide them with an impassioned voice for social and environmental impact. Most notably, the firm has convinced seven public companies, including eBay, Starbucks, Apple, and Amazon, to disclose data on gender equity. That issue is only one of the firm's causes. Arjuna's proposals focus on myriad social and environmental issues. So you can learn a lot more about this on Fast Company if you're interested, but I just thought that was another really exciting development given, you know, the inner revolution and our, you know, really oneness, accountability, and mutual support being the foundations of, uh, of that and of this movement that we're, you know, a part of. It's, um, it's just great to see people using their, you know, the financial, whatever's at their, this, you know, <laughs> disposal. And I think it's so neat today, you know, that we have this topic on, on how do we change behavior, our own and others. So I'd like to now introduce Cassandra Vitan, who is the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, as we mentioned earlier. And I, I want to start with IONS because, you know, I, I don't know that people know what noetic means. And so I'd like you to start, Cassandra, if you could, with how and why IONS was founded. Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth person to walk on the moon, and he was an MIT-trained engineer and a Navy pilot, and he had a broad range of interests, but he was definitely um, a Newtonian sort of person who... Uh, trusted it enough to get into a rocket to take him to the moon. And, you know, at the time, you have to imagine that there was less computing power in all of mission control than in the iPhone in your pocket right now or the smartphone in your pocket. So we're talking about sort of the Wild West of space exploration back then. And so on his way back to the Earth from space, he was in the space capsule looking out the window and viewing the Earth and the stars and the sun and the moon in this sort of peaceful, rotating fashion after all of his work had been done. And he had this deep awakening or realization or epiphany, and it had to do with two things. One was he felt at a very deep level his essential interconnectedness with everything he saw, um, the space capsule, the earth, the stars, the moon, the sun, really feeling kind of a lack of separation or the dissolution of the boundaries of himself and everything. And realizing, you know, as he would have put it, we're all stardust, you know, that everything is made of the same stuff and that there's some sort of implicate order or um, intelligence or light shining through everything. So that was a very blissful experience. And then the other was viewing the Earth from space and recognizing that when you view it as a whole from that distance, you really see it as a coherent, cohesive, living being with many parts of it. And the boundaries between countries, for example, are human constructions. They are... Sorry, my apologies. My phone was not turned off. Um, 
so the boundaries between countries are human constructions, and they are imaginary. Really, we made them up. And then if you see how much time we we spend fighting each other over those imaginary boundaries or other issues like, um, you know, the concept that um, we can't feed everybody on the planet or that there's not enough water for everyone on the planet or there's no way to get it to them or there's no way to clean the water or there's no way to have better health and well-being or we must imprison people, there's no other way. Those kinds of limitations in human consciousness are really holding us back from achieving our full potential. So what Edgar thought was, you know, I want to investigate this hypothesis that there is sort of a much more interconnected way of looking at things and that we can transform people's consciousness and by shifting their perspectives and giving them a different idea or a more complete or accurate picture of reality and what we're really capable of, we're going to be able to make major leaps. And so for the last 43 years, that's what IONS has been doing, um, scientific experiments on the mind-body connection, on the connection between individuals and others, and then on the connection between attention, intention, belief, worldview, and perspective on the world. Cool. <laughs> That's a pretty broad uh, subject, and uh, I, we're really looking forward to hearing some of the ways that that's playing out in the work that you're actually doing and, um, you know, with different groups. I'd like to hear about also your life experiences, you know, that you've had that led you to being interested in, one, this topic, and and just a little bit about your, you know, your career path or your life work path, if you, you know, want to call it that. I know you've done quite a few different things, and so I think it's important, you know, to give context to this whole conversation, your own perspective and how you came to it and what drew you to it. Sure. Well, I was raised by... um My dad was a scientist, a biological scientist, and so I have these really fond memories of growing up and going to the lab after school and, you know, having a, borrowing a lab coat and having the sleeves drag along the floor as I walked down the hall and being propped up onto a little lab bench to mix up solutions and beakers and look through microscopes. So that was always a very important part of my life, you know, having a lot of Um, dinner parties at the house with scientists and listening to all of that kind of conversation. And then my mom was a therapist and very much into sort of a Jungian orientation that paid attention to dreams and symbols and, um, you know, the inner world and feminine spirituality and things like that. And so um, not too surprisingly, my parents split up when I was nine, but I really got that deep... um, feeling from both of them that there's a very powerful way of knowing the external world through science, and then there's also a very powerful way of knowing the internal world through um, dreams and symbols and intuition and um, mythology and things like that. And so I had both of those ways of knowing growing up, um, and I wasn't raised religious at all or not even really with a spiritual practice. It was a very sort of um, secular, humanist, you know, modern intellectual kind of family, and um, as a teenager, I started to just have a a few experiences myself where I was like, it just, you know, feels like there's something else going on here. Like, I remember being out in the orange groves. I grew up in Southern California at night with a bonfire and looking into the stars and kind of having like a tiny version of that Edgar experience and saying, 
you know, I just feel something very vast here that is trying, almost like trying to get our attention, you know, and that there, there seems to be a better way of doing things. And then I also had a really strong, sensitive um, social justice aspect of myself where, um, you know, I watched the, the TV miniseries Roots when I was about 10 years old, and that really just blew me out of the water that, you know, there were there were these um, ways that humans could act toward one another that were so cruel and so violent and so long-lasting and pervasive. And it was so upsetting to me as a young teenager or an adolescent that that could even happen, that I think the only way I could resolve it in myself was to say, I really want to spend my life trying to find out what kind of worldviews would lead someone to be able to do that and then how can we create worldviews that would make that impossible? So that was kind of the childhood priming. I went into psychology because it was the only field I thought that could kind of capture all of that stuff at once, having a little bit of a, the science and the inner world. And uh, pretty soon took a class on Buddhism, and that was my first encounter with an Eastern philosophy that I thought was much more practical, accurate, um, much more aligned with my uh, own experience of what was true about suffering and how to ease suffering and, um, you know, how you could work with your experience in a way that was really useful. And so I ended up going to grad school at a place that integrated Eastern philosophy with Western psychology training. And that was called the California Institute of Integral Studies. I got my PhD there and um, was on the pathway to becoming a, I did become a clinical psychologist and got my license. But then I had this little um, sort of problem where I thought, this is good, clinical psychology and Eastern philosophy and meditation and all these things, but it's all very subjective and individual. It doesn't, it, I don't know if it's going to generalize to discoveries that help thousands or millions of people. Like, I really want to try to do something that makes a big difference. And so I went back into science and was at UCSF for about 12 years in San Francisco and worked on a project on behavioral genetics. It was trying to find genes for alcoholism. And so I got my science training at the same time as I was finishing my clinical degree. And the research world just kept opening up more and more. And then when I drifted all the way over into science, I thought, okay, now I'm missing the spiritual side. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see this uh, back and forth in my life. So uh, I ended up putting science and spirituality into my Internet browser, and I found the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was five minutes away from my house. I had never heard of it. And I went to visit, and it was like we believe in bringing together these two ways of knowing, the inner way of knowing or what we call the noetic. Noetic meaning inner wisdom or inner knowledge, so when you just know something is true and you don't know how you know it. So gut feelings and hunches and intuitions and deep realizations, um, insights, and then pairing those with the scientific method, which is observation, replication, generalizability, controlling for alternative explanations, and um, bringing together that inner world with the outer world. And I thought, okay, this is my place. So I've been here now for 
uh, about 16 and a half years and have served as the director of research and then the CEO and president, and now I'm serving as the president. Yeah, wow. It's an amazing story. You know, you you covered so much terrain there. Um, I was thinking about just starting with that that, uh, similarity between you as a child out in the orange groves at the bonfire being mesmerized and, you know, your soul and your, your psyche opened up seeing the vast universe and feeling connected to it and the experience that the, that the astronaut had that founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And mm. I know I've had experiences like that in, in different, um, different spots, you know, and I've had it both in urban areas where I've been just shocked at my feeling of interconnectedness with people. I wonder, I, I remember one time I got off the airplane in Miami and it was such an international um, hmm. uh, crowd I walked into in so many languages. And immediately I just felt this tingling and a whole expansion of, of myself energetically and realizing how connected we all are. Mm-hmm. And I, I you know, it, it's deeply moving. And I think it's also fascinating that you had both the Jungian perspective and the scientific perspective because it explains really how you could be um, the perfect person to lead the Institute of Noetic Sciences today, you know, bringing, bringing both energies together and helping to frame the conversation in a way that um, maybe more left-brain people will understand, you know, so we mm-hmm. can get to both the heart and the mind simultaneously. So it, yeah. it's, it's, it's an amazing journey you've been on. Thank you. Yeah, it, it feels like a destiny job, you know. This is, uh, yeah. I can't imagine a place that would be more, um, I, you know, uh, aligned with my background and who I am. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, there's this, I had such a strong affinity from an early age for Star Trek and Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. and... Um, one of the books that changed my life was Stranger in a Strange Land, which is now, you know, a pretty old science fiction book, but it was about a human who was raised on Mars, and when he came back to Earth, he knew the Martian language, and somehow when he started teaching, and he had these powers of mind over matter and psychic phenomena and uh, being able to think things into reality. And something about that just absolutely captivated my attention. And part of that story, too, was that when he taught other people the Martian language, they started to be able to do it. So it wasn't like it was a superpower that only he had. It was something about the way you language the world and the way you see the world unlocking different aspects of our potential. Fascinating. <laughs> I have to share because you said that, you know, I didn't realize the degree to which Star Wars, you know, I saw it when I was 13 years old and it really shaped my um, perspective on what spirituality and what God is because of the mm-hmm. force, you know, because I didn't have God as some like guy and some guy in the sky. Even I knew very young that that wasn't not it, you know. So when I saw Star Wars and I heard about the force and watched this, you know, it's like I wanted to see it over and over again. Right. Because I really could connect to that. There's some kind of energy and there's some kind of intelligence, but it isn't formed like a human being. And right. then later, you know, just seeing our body and how our body has to work together, things work together in concert. You know, like if we are a representation of the universe, our body is a perfect example of how how things have to work together and collaborate. You know, if mm-hmm. one part of the body is fighting the other 
and they, it doesn't work it out, you know, you don't you don't keep living. You right. know what I mean? So so there are so many little indicators along the way of what we really know to be true on one level. But it's mm. it's neat how science and spirituality also is coming together and you know uh, debunking some of the things that occur as real because we because of the our particular apparatus. You know the way our eyes are and the way we right. experience life. So um, so I, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted I want to just jump in with two different perspectives that support the work. One is I had, you know, I had these amazing feelings of being interconnected with the universe, but I actually started drinking really young in uh, mm. middle school. And I, I was fortunate enough to get sober pretty young too in my early twenties, but I had, you know, a period where I was pretty self-destructive. And so, um, and a very religious upbringing too. So when I found my way into the world of the 12 steps, I, I found a different way to, to be spiritual. And then, and that evolved later on as well. But I went, I went down kind of a dark path. And um, one of the pieces that brought me out of it was this deep inside knowing that humanity, like this is not as good as it gets. You know, like the, the way I'm living my life, this is just not as good as it gets. Not about material things, but but like how I felt on the inside. And I think that's one of the the awarenesses that bonds us, whether we want to, you know, whether we want the Dakota pipeline to stop or we want to see the war in Syria stop or we want to help, you know, refugees. There's this common feeling of like humanity is better than this, you know. Right. And um the other pieces, and then I want to jump into, you know, hearing about your research and sharing with our, our listeners, but the other piece is that this need to change behavior, you know, I'm very self-absorbed most of the time, and I think about it like, I want to stop doing this behavior that's that's dysfunctional, but your, your teaching and your research actually would be enormously helpful to industry, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about corporate America changing, or we're talking about changing the way... Um, uh, the government functions or the military functions, you know, your research transcends um, any area where humans need to think and engage and be creative and move forward together. And and I love that because it's not just about some kind of like wah-wah, you know, spiritual conversation. It's very right. relevant to every single aspect of life, including business, including politics, you know, including um, any, di- any group where there's a group of people that have to function together. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's just really interesting how um, society for many, many millennia was very biased toward this sort of mystical, superstitious animism. You know, everything was deeply subjective and deeply imbued with um, maybe even, you know, over time, it became sort of dysfunctional, you know, and in in the end, that way of being led us in in a way away from the peacefulness that had that it that you know in some of the peaceful early tribes there was a real pragmatics of the real world and then an infusion of the spiritual world that seems to be the right balance, and then we almost went so far into when Catholicism took over and we move into the Dark Ages and the Inquisition, it was like. You know, no, you're not allowed to measure. You're not allowed to observe. Science is not good. You know, just believe, have blind faith. And it took us in the wrong path. And now we've swung almost all the way the other side where 
only the outside physical reality is real and everything else is imaginary mm. and not very important and don't worry about it and only your actions matter, only science matters, only technology matters and that doesn't work either because you're ignoring the wisdom of the inner world or the kind of the accompanying ethics that go along with that kind of development. So a lot of what we're talking about is just rebalancing to a place where we don't ignore the realities of the outer world and we tr- we utilize that discernment and power of the scientific method to revise our hypotheses if new data are presented, but we don't ignore that very important inner realm. Every single person knows when they most when when you reach your deathbed for example that the building blocks of quality of life were as you said not the money not the material possessions not the achievements and the accolades and the degrees they were who did you love how well did you love were you integrity were you honest did you make a difference was did you leave a legacy and those things come from investigation and cultivation of the inner world so I'm really passionate about um, re-infusing, sometimes I like to say re-enchanting the world, and I don't mean it like a, a fairy tale enchantment. I mean it like re- putting magic back into our world, bringing back the inner aspect of things, because the truth is it really does infuse our world. So limited thinking infuses a limited world, and that... Um, high potential, high consciousness thinking can infuse a higher potential world. Totally agree with you. So it's, it's amazing what um, that kind of curiosity and willingness to not know, you know, um, I, how important that is. You know, you, mm-hmm. I remember watching the webinar and, you know, I was on it live and you said, you know, one of the things I want to say here as the outset is, you know, there's... I'm really coming from a place of humility. My desire to change behavior and that the desire for the highest good of all isn't about like putting my agenda on you. I don't necessarily know right. what the highest good is for everyone. Right. And we, we very much resonate with that philosophy of what's for the highest good of all. In fact, it's one of the questions that we ask in all that we do. You know, is it for the highest good of all for me to, and that has to include myself if it's going to be mm-hmm. the highest good of all. It includes me as well. So I'd like to, uh, yeah, get more in, get, maybe you could just summarize. I mean, I know that was a long, hour-long conversation, but to summarize your, you know, your research, what do you, what do you find about how do you change minds, your own or others? I mean, I know you talked about some different things like information is necessary but not sufficient, motivation mm-hmm. isn't enough either. And so um, could, you, could you summarize that conversation? I mean, we don't want to take a whole half hour, maybe, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes and sure, then yeah talk. I mean yeah. I think you know it's important to know that the basis of this work comes out of a, a series of studies we did here at the Institute of Noetic Sciences on how people transform from a more limited um, ego-based individualistic um, fearful contracted way of being where they're sort of the agent of their future and they've got to fight off the attackers and defend themselves and, you know, that sort of way of being. Or or the other way of being is to be, like, extremely self-obsessed and self-conscious and awkward and anxious because and, you're so worried about, am I going to mess up or make a mistake or hurt something? So that very, that self-focus to a more compassionate, altruistic, um, interconnected, 
sense of belonging, more frequent flow states, vulnerability, authenticity, honesty, alignment with your purpose and your values, meaning in life. Those kinds of transformations happen to people all the time, and they happen through dramatic experiences, and they happen through gradual experiences, and sometimes they happen through secular means, and sometimes they happen through religious or spiritual means, and sometimes it's a huge experience, sometimes it's a tiny one uh, that really changes everything, and often it's a really, really difficult one. What we found in our research when we looked at people who had had these changes, so we looked at thousands of people who had experienced these transformations and we did surveys with them and we did focus groups with people who teach transformative processes and we did interviews with um, dozens of people who represented the major world religions, the spiritual traditions, um, Eastern philosophies, and then kind of more modern, eclectic, transformational programs. So we really tried to get deeply immersed into what is it that makes those positive changes happen for people. And that sorted out into a model of transformation that we put into a spiral. It looks like the Fibonacci spiral. And all of those transformations start with somebody having a direct experience of having to shift or widen, broaden their worldview to be able to accommodate this new experience or information. So Piaget was a developmental psychologist who talked about assimilation versus accommodation. And assimilation is where new information comes to you and you just somehow fit it into your current meaning system and go along your way. Accommodation is where you have to stretch your mind or your perspective to get bigger to accommodate that new information. And that's the kind of worldview shift we often saw in people. Another kind was... um, a complete reorientation. So about 70% of people who have transformations like that, they're very difficult, challenging, negative experiences. They're an illness. They're the hitting bottom with an addiction, a divorce, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, um, a nervous breakdown. You know, those near-death experiences, those kinds of experiences have the potential to transform people for the for the better, and nowadays the field is called post-traumatic growth. People look at how do people grow after these traumas, and the way that happens is it's almost like everything falls apart and falls on the floor, and then when you pick it back up again, you have the opportunity to put the right priorities on the top and the lesser priorities at the bottom. One person told me it's like flipping a deck of cards up and all the cards fall on the ground and you pick them all up, but the the ones you put on the top are these completely different priorities than you had before. And so that research led us to this model. And uh, just to boil it down, what's informing this new thing about boosting the effectiveness of change makers is really four elements. Number one is direct experience. Number two is data and evidence. Number three is tools and applications. And number four is community. And when I was um, as president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, we've actually created the organizational change model is now around the change we want to make in the world. We know that we have to not just give people information, not just give them data, 
um, not just try to talk them into it or motivate them through in the webinar that you're talking about. I've talked about all the different ways we try to change ourselves and other people's. We, we uh, cajole and bargain and convince and barrage and, you know, threaten. I've and, never done any of that. You know, yeah, I mean, with ourselves, you know, like we yell at ourselves, you know, come on, get to the gym, up, 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 go, 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 you know. That actually doesn't change people. So, and neither does, you know, reading book after book after book after book on how good it would be for you to go to the gym. So what does is, number one, having repeated and trustworthy direct experiences of the new way of being or at least of the limits of the old way of being. The second is data and evidence are absolutely essential, but they need to be um, conveyed in a way that is accessible, uh, easy to understand, not too incredibly overwhelming, and really as support for the direct experience or as an expansion of what somebody might have been curious about. So instead of like loading people, like let's say we're trying to change a company's behavior around climate change or around their polluting behaviors or their uh, using sweatshop labor. And, you know, we just tell them over and over again, this is what's happened. This is what you need to know. You need to know this. You need to know that. And then they don't change. And you say, well, okay, let's give them more data, more information. And if not, let's start yelling at them. Let's start shaming them. Let's start embarrassing them. Let's start insulting them. You know, those are all things that don't help. They don't change people. So the data have to be presented in a way that's like, here are eight data points that you need to be aware of, and I'm going to put them on a one- or two-pager for you, and this is going to ideally support or expand this little crack in the armor that we've made through the direct experience. And then we give people very feasible, achievable goals. So one thing that I learned from the coaching world, and I remember when I was being coached myself, they said, choose a goal for this thing you want. Choose something that you really want to do in your life and choose a goal that is 100% achievable. Like, let's say you want to start exercising. Um, You know, the goal was like, exercise one minute a day for seven days. And I was like, that's completely useless. That's totally ridiculous. Why would I... It doesn't even make sense to exercise for one minute a day. Well, the truth is it does make sense because it moves you into an embodied experience of doing it. It gives you the satisfaction of having done it. It doesn't go too far to challenge your status quo, but it stretches you with just enough of an experienced reward that you might go two minutes and then you might go four minutes and then you might go six minutes. And, you know, that's just the exercise example. There's a lot of other examples. But if you were working with a company, you might say, what is one thing that you could implement right now with 100% certainty of being able to achieve it? Uh And they might say, we could put a recycling bin in the kitchen. Great. That's all I want you to do for the first month. And let them have the experience of succeeding. And then the fourth is to... um, connect people in community with what change they're trying to make. So if you're trying to help a change, make a change in yourself or you're trying to make a change in another person or um, giving a talk, let's say, for example, one of the things that you should do if you give a talk is absolutely somewhere in your talk say, here are three different 
places that you can connect today when you leave this talk to talk about this issue. Here's a Facebook page. Here's an email group. Here's a um, webinar, you know, a phone call that happens every week. Here's a, commun- here's a local regional group that you can connect with because most of us, we're just incredibly social beings and it's very hard to make a change without a community of support around that change that is, you know, reinforcing it for you and reminding you that you wanted to go in that direction. And if you can't connect people directly with a community, you can at least say to them something along the lines of, when you do this, you will be joining you know, the 70% of people who are doing this. Or, you know, even if they're alone in their community, you might say, you know, when you do this, you're going to be one of the people in your community that's joining 70 countries around the world who have already adopted this. And just giving that membership, belonging aspect of things is incredibly um, psychologically rewarding and it makes people feel safer because one of the scariest things about changing is that, you're not going to be who you were. You're not going to be connected to who you used to be connected with. And from an evolutionary perspective, that's going to make you feel very, very unsafe, even if right. what you're doing is really unsafe. Yeah, yeah. Boy, we've focused on that a lot in the innerrevolution.org, that community piece. We really, we really have that one. And we, we, we have seen it, how much it matters to have a community of people that are supporting you, you know, and at every moment and intervening when your ego is blaring or, you know, but in a way that's loving and supportive, but also pointing it out to you, you know, so that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, uh, you know, that whole concept of like envisaging yourself moving into an entirely different community, like whether you're leaving behind a gang or you're leaving behind you know, using drugs or alcohol or mm-hmm. you're leave, leaving a religion that feels like it's really stifling you or you're, you know, leaving a marriage or you're leaving your family of origin right. because they're holding you back. It's hard to do anything alone. And mm-hmm. um, I know I did a lot of individual therapy for years, but I actually really started to change like exponentially mm-hmm. when I got into a 12-step program where there was a community. Right. And then, and then you know, I grew, 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 grew. And then I reached a point where I needed something else. And I found this group that I'm with right now, the innerrevolution.org. And and for me, it's just, it's just, there's nothing else, right? Like I need a group to be with that shares the values and, and where we don't feel ashamed to admit when we slip back into old behavior. Like, Right. You're talk. You're talking to two parents, Todd and Todd and I parent, and we're in a parenting group, and so, you know, we we see the ins and outs every day. Of um, we both have um, teenagers, and he has a younger child, and challenging ourselves not to be in the shame blame, you know, right. scenario. Dominate, right? <laughs> dominate. You know, it is. You're like, making me look bad. You know. Yeah, <laughs> so and many. it's it's really about staying awake. You know, which is. And and knowing that you are going to fall back asleep, that's really the big thing. I mean, I just had an experience the other day where I had a coworker that I was talking to in a particular way, and then three days later, I was like, why would you talk to her in that way? Well, because I fell asleep yeah. again. You know, that's what right. happened. I, lo- I got triggered. I fell asleep for a little bit. I went back into yeah. those kind of lower consciousness places, and that's, we all do that. And, I mean, another thing about what you just said I think is so important is the people that we 
as, let's say, as a progressives maybe look at is very different from us, um, the people who are not, in our view, um, upholding, you know, health care for all or, you know, environmental protections or, you know, these different areas that, that we see as important for justice and the well-being of society, you know, you're asking leaders in that domain to give up their families, their lifelong belief system, their masculinity, their, you know, if they're women, sometimes their femininity, you're asking them to give up not just a behavior, but their entire identity and their whole idea about the nature of reality. And so to think that we can give them a set of data and then shame them into it, yeah. They already are going to be feeling shame just by even considering moving out of their lifelong worldview. And, and so it's, it's got to be almost, it's a very paradoxical thing. It's, you know, that kind, encouraging that kind of change. Um, and then maybe, you know, going on to the tools thing, like expecting what we would see as a very obvious and small change, but for them is an enormous sacrifice it's just not going to work. And so I think that's where we as change makers and people who are, you know, working for the revolution really <laughs> have to take a hard look at how we're doing it. Because how yes. we're doing it is unintentionally backfiring often. It's unintentionally actually doing the opposite of what we're hoping that it would do. Yeah. Yep. Let's talk about that. Talk about talk about you know that that very point because um, it's so important right now. You know, it's just it couldn't be even more important when there's so much dissension. You know, in the field and in society. You're you know, gonna we laugh. Have, we have to listen to each other. We don't want to, and we have to. We, we're just mm-hmm. we're ridiculous not to. Yeah, our next event, Cassie, is called. Do we really want an inner revolution or do we want everyone else to change? <laughs> I love it. Just agree with us. Agree. July 1st. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's great. I just wrote a book chapter and I found this really cool quote by Abraham Lincoln and I don't have it in front of me so I won't be able to do it but you know he would speak in this incredibly poetic way and you know this was basically like um, you know you could have a point that you want to make that is so true that it is, you know, absolutely perfection, you know, like sharp as a blade, and it will bounce off your opponent if you... Basically, the point was, you know, the last thing that somebody wants to join is the person who just made them feel ashamed. The person who... They're not going to join their condemning... the, The people who are condemning them. So if we continue on this path of condemnation and shame, not that there's never a place for that. I mean, certainly I, I believe that shining the light on something that's secret is incredibly powerful. Let's look at tobacco, for example, when we finally unveiled that the tobacco companies knew all along that it was addictive and they were really lying, completely lying. That was good to shine a light on it and say, this is what is. But what was different about that is it's not like we looked at the entire group of people smoking and said, you you guys are all disgusting and awful and stupid, you know? <laughs> right. And or you so, should be so ashamed of yourself. And right. even, you know, even, I mean, even 
we can go so far if we're really trying to practice the oneness and, and it's one of the teachings we have in the inner revolution that we do try to practice the oneness that we can look at the executives who are knowingly poisoning people knowing that they're going to die because mm-hmm. they're afraid they're going to lose their job, you know? And mm-hmm. so it all comes back to kind of that lizard like part of our brain, yeah. which is, which is really programmed to say my survival, my survival, my survival, that right. that is the most important thing and that everything else becomes secondary and we lose right. our humanity. And, and um, so I am that, okay, maybe I've never poisoned anyone, but I, instead of holding myself out as being separate from that person, I say, you know, there before the grace of God go I, I've done something like that, maybe not to that extent, but I have done my own, mm-hmm. you know, my own, uh, my own even um, psychological killing of people, right? Someone saying right. something and you don't want to hear it and you're just projecting, will you shut up when you shut up? I wish you disappear, mm-hmm. you know, or worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a very useful thing for everyday life, too. When you're walking through life and, you know, you run into someone who's being really obnoxious, one of the things that's helped me a lot is when I can to say, oh, so that's how that person acts when they feel anxious and triggered and unsafe. You know, that's how yeah. that person acts when they feel that way. I act like a jerk when I feel that way sometimes. Everybody does. So when people feel extremely anxious, unsafe, um, unhappy in that, you know, that kind of uh, triggered place on a consistent basis, we're all capable of doing pretty awful things when we're in that place. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, you know, a lot of this is not so much, it's not to, I don't have a Pollyanna sort of, kumbaya like just reach out to all the other side and if you love them enough it'll be just fine I think it's more about um, you know authenticity vulnerability standing strong not looking away having compassion which doesn't mean approval or condoning having acceptance which doesn't mean approval or condoning but facing things as they really are meeting them as they really are and it's almost got that water on a rock, uh, water on a stone feeling of like, I will stand here. I will continue to tell the truth as much as I possibly can in every way that I can. I'll continue to try to stay awake myself and I won't stop. But I also am going to work on not condemning and shaming and blaming and insulting and denigrating and putting down and also not that sort of strident, hysterical, you know, don't you all see, you know, we're the, the entire right. world is burning, it's over, we're past the point, it's not, you know, that kind of feeling. All of those kinds of things we think are going to motivate people, like, you know, we're, we're past the point of no return, we're past peak oil, there's no, you know, that kind of stuff. It just shuts people down. It just makes them want to go watch TV. I, it, there isn't anything that could be less motivating than that kind of rhetoric. <laughs> Can we talk now? Um, we got about ten minutes remaining, or maybe eight or seven, um, about some of the projects. I know there's the worldview explorations that you're doing. I'd love to hear about some of, like, if you can speak to some of the results or what you've seen and how this is playing out in. For children, I think that's really inspiring and hopeful, you know, that that you can create experiences for kids for their worldview to change. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, 
You know, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and you can learn a lot more at noetic.org, um, we have, our, our premise is basically that you can use science in concert with experiential education to help with um, change, shifting worldviews. And so the Worldview Explorations Program came out of this transformation project that I told you about where the very last question we asked people in our multiple interviews of all of these people, when we asked them, you know, what are the practices that you think stimulate transformation and, you know, what are the mechanisms and what, how does it really work? The very last question was, we said was, is there anything that you would recommend that we do into the future? And almost every person said, bring some of this, these practices to young people. Because for mm. the vast majority of people, their transformation happened later in their life like I said earlier, when they had a near-death experience or an illness or a divorce or some sort of deconstruction or a hitting bottom. And they wished, uh, I mean, I sometimes when I'm giving talks, I'll say, please raise your hand if you had one course in your school from kindergarten through the college that was on how to access your intuition, utilize your gut feelings and your hunches, be still, listen deeply, you know, access your inner wisdom to work in combination with what you're observing out in the world and the data and the evidence. You know, how many of you had one hour of your entire education dedicated to that and almost no one raises their hand? So that is the kind of thing that we think really, really needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And children are so open to it. I mean... We've done this Worldview Explorations program, which really has three elements. One is becoming aware of yourself and your own worldviews. Um, so one of the exercises would be um, helping kids understand that everything they see is filtered through a almost like a set of glasses that have been built by all of their upbringing, their region, their religion, their experiences, their education, um, all of that stuff. And just that awakening alone that I'm holding a worldview that yeah. filters my reality is a major mind blower. So we'll use <laughs> an example like you're walking down the hallway, somebody bumps into you, one person says, hey, back off, you got a problem? Okay, so that's somebody who sees that experience as I'm being threatened, this is dangerous, I'm gaining, I, I might get humiliated, I have to defend myself. Whereas another person is walking down the hallway at school and somebody bumps into them and they say, oh my God, I'm sorry, are you okay? Uh Totally different worldview. Same exact experience. So we also do optical illusions with them in the classroom where you see a ballet dancer who looks like she's spinning to the left. And if you look at it just slightly different, it looks like she's spinning to the right. And you have this great argument in the classroom between the kids who are like, no, she's spinning to the right. No, she's spinning to the left. <laughs> and then they get to see, wow, we can experience right now how two, two people can see the same exact thing in completely different ways. Yeah. And those kinds of awakenings for kids help them understand that not only that they have a worldview, but then the next part of the program is, what would happen if you could decide how you wanted to look at things? It wasn't just passive. It was an active choice about how you want to look at things. So then we'll say, okay, great. Make the ballerina go to the left. Make the ballerina go to the right. By changing your perspective, you could do the same thing in the world. You can do the same thing in your life. And then the third part of it is, 
how does that influence society? And what do you want your contribution to society to be in the future? And it's just wild. I mean, we'll say, what is the most important thing to you? What do you hold most sacred in your entire life? And there'll be a 16-year-old kid who will say, no adult has ever asked me that question. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's so poignant. Um, I'm jumping in because we have four minutes left. Yes. And we, you just said so much, Cassandra, and I don't want to, I don't want to glaze over it. And it's, it's funny. My reaction is almost exactly what you described in your um, presentation that I watched the video about. Sometimes you hear something and it feels so overwhelming that you think I'm just not going to do anything. So I'm going to change my reaction right now and I'm going to rise to the occasion and say I am committed to being part of this community, this worldwide community that does listen and and does want to support people to connect to their inner being as well as the outer world. And actually, the inner revolution has an amazing way to do that. we're having a workshop this weekend. We're going to be at the McKenzie River in Oregon, and people can participate in person or online. So today's Thursday, and we're starting on Saturday. So people are welcome to sign <laughs> You're up. into last-minute decision-making yeah. and yeah. going for a weekend <laughs> workshop. And <laughs> want to fly yeah. to Oregon? Do. But if right. not, join us. Please online. join us. Yeah. Um, And our show next week is going to also be about the workshop. We're going to have guests on the show that are going to share their experience because we're really seeing that for for our energy to shift both on an individual basis, on a collective basis, one, one important thing is to embrace creativity as a way of life. And our workshop is called Breaking the Habit of Habit. Um, Embracing creativity as a way, creativity as a way of life, breaking the habit of habit. Yes. Yes, so we're really excited. Creativity is not a special gift possessed by just a few talented people. It is us, so why not be creative every day in every way? And Let's break out of the dullness of our mindless habits and think and feel anew. And I hope that our listeners today are inspired by the work that Cassandra is doing and the information that you've shared with us, Cassandra. About and they'll learn more. You know, they'll go to noetic.org and learn more about the all the things that you're doing, including the worldview uh Is it Worldview Exploration? Worldview Exploration for kids, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I really highly recommend it. And I also um, recommend that people consider coming to our conference in Oakland, California on January, um, June, sorry, let me do that the third time, July, July 20th (laughs) through 23rd in Oakland, California. And there's still a um, discounted rate until June 20th. And so I really... It's an amazing, amazing opportunity to be with hundreds of other people where every session is a scientist paired with somebody who is an inner wisdom practitioner talking about the science of it and then talking about the direct experience of it. And I just love what you said about breaking the habit of habits. You know, some people say, hey, you've got to form new habits. And it's like, no, how about not forming new habits and forming a new way of being awake and responsive? So I I love that. Oh, that's beautiful. We're, we need to um, we need to say goodbye in the next 30 seconds. Todd, I'll let you wrap it up. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Cassandra. This has been delightful, and I hope we can continue the conversation offline. <laughs> I don't know what that's going to exactly look like, but 
Uh, is anything else you want to say in closing? No, just feel free to visit us at noetic.org and join the community. And I really love what you guys are up to. It sounds like the inner revolution community is wonderful as well. And I'm glad we're all doing this work. Me too. All right. Till next week. Thanks, everyone. Yes. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.